Hi guys and welcome back to Straight Up, the UK music podcast going behind the scenes with the biggest names in the business, hosted by me, Kathleen Johnston, and my co-host and fellow journalist, Eleanor Halls. So this week's guest is someone whose work you'll definitely have seen all over Instagram and YouTube. It's Henry Schofield, one of the most sought after music video directors in the world, who has worked with Julie Per, Stormzy, Wiley, Billie Eilish, Camila Cabello, and Rosalia, just to name drop a few massive global artists. Yep, so we have been big fans of Henry's work ever since we fell in love with Dua's New Rules in 2017, which was the incredible video shot in Miami, which I'm sure you've all seen. It's got this amazing choreography. There's five dancers that basically capture the spirit of female solidarity that the song's gonna the song's all about in like such a lovely way. And yeah, the video did insanely well and helped kickstart Dua's career as a proper like glo- global mega pop icon. Exactly. It's now on two billion views on YouTube and Henry has worked with Dua ever since on I Don't Give a fuck as well as don't break my heart i think my vid- uh, favorite video though is the one uh, henry did with stormzy for sounds of the skeng because it is so cheeky so youthful so fun so energetic so london which is how i would sum up henry's signature style if you are anything like us then you'll be fascinated with the world of music videos from how the most um ambitious visuals are actually made to the process of collaborating with the world's biggest stars. Henry covers all of this in fascinating detail with great behind the scenes stories about Dua, Stormzy, Billie Eilish and more, covering choreography and props and onset nightmares, cost, everything. We recorded it remotely from Spain where Henry is spending lockdown with his girlfriend, which is why, by the way, you might hear a few uh, tinkling of cutlery halfway through the podcast. He was actually being made a really lovely dinner by his girlfriend, which we rudely interrupted. Um, Anyway, Henry talks about the significance of the music video in 2020, creative career advice, and the most iconic music videos of the last decade. After our interview with Henry, Elle and I also share our thoughts on how the music industry has reacted to the Black Lives Matter movement over the past couple of weeks, um, as well as just sharing some personal recommendations across TV, podcast and books that we found particularly helpful when it comes not just to further understanding and discussing the movement but like proactively allying ourselves with it in the most constructive ways possible. As always let us know what you think of the episode on Instagram, Uh, we'd love to hear from you and don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. Well thank you so much for coming on the podcast, it's so nice to meet you virtually it's the only way to meet we wanted to ask you first about break my heart of course it's unescapable right now literally everywhere i am obsessed we love it it's the best video i've seen in a long time um it was shot in budapest right and it was quite an intense shoot minus eight degrees uh what was like your most memorable moment from that shoot and how many days were you filming for well it was shot actually i think it was um it was sofia in bulgaria um, and we were shooting for two days and one night. Um, we shot the night scene first in the freezing cold, um, which was cool. Poor Dua, she came and she was kind of ill or getting over an illness at the time. And so she was very fluey, but she was such a soldier, which is kind of her way. Um, she gave, um, yeah, so we did that. Uh, yeah. And then the next couple of days we went through the sets. We were shooting on a really great setup where we had like, three stages next to each other with all of our set builds in it. Um, yeah, there was a lot of different memorable parts. Uh, one of the fun things that my producer put up is, I tend to try out any stunts before I ask any of the cast to do it. So he had a great clip of me being yanked off in a wire, like pulled off scene in a wire. And um, I think one of the other things that was really fun, we had um, for the scene where we pull out of the boat, we'd actually built our set as a tilting set on a hydraulic system. So the whole of the room is kind of built up two meters high. And then uh, and then on cue, we tilt the whole set. So everything goes like this um, as if we're on a boat. So that was quite fun. We were shooting that quite late at night. Um, and yeah, it was it was great actually, yeah. And Dua did all of her own stunts, which was wicked. Um, and I, I loved the, the kind of choreography moments and stuff when we were, in the restaurant that came together super well. How did you first meet Dua? I met Dua like, I mean, we did our first video a couple of years ago, I think. And we just met like the first thing was um, just in a simple way, getting a track and putting a pitch together. And then um, I think the first one we worked on was with Miguel. Um, And then we got on super well. And so, and then on the next one, we started uh, to work together again. And um, yeah, and then we kind of got to know each other through working together and she's, um, yeah kind of uh, the first introduction was doing a video together and then since then it's been a pretty great collaboration. What's your kind of best or most 
fun or crazy memory you have with duo from across the years be that working together or behind the scenes of a shoot oh that's a good question um maybe it was on the new new rules when we first wrapped that and we were going crazy um i think there was a great moment on the last one recently when it was quite late we've been working long long hours and there was a setup of dominoes and um and because it, it was on a raised set it was just her and i just waiting up there for camera and we were like oh let's get these dominoes straight and we spent like 15 minutes just straightening dominoes <laughs> and finding ourselves hilarious and probably it was so funny because we were very tired um yeah, I, I, yeah, and on uh, I, and the, I don't give a fuck. So she really gets involved. And she gets involved, yeah, exactly, and she's up for a laugh. Um, yeah, I think on the I don't give a fuck um, uh, video, uh, I remember Marion Motin, who's a brilliant choreographer, um, who I was working with on that. Marion is wonderful, like intricate choreography, but very kind of difficult and intricate. And I remember Dua walked into the first rehearsal and we'd kind of been prepping and we're like, okay, this is going to be it. And Dua just went, like, turned to me and went, what the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) And then then sure enough, like, as in like, wow, that's super difficult. And sure enough, she nailed it. Um, In the end, I think that comes back attesting again to her kind of hard work and and, and dedication and stuff. But um, yeah, no, we've had some great moments over the years. So can you talk us through the process of what it means to direct, for instance, Break My Heart, a journey per video? Like, how long how, do you analyse the lyrics? Are you kind of mood boarding it? Are you looking at... Because I know you've been inspired by art, for instance, in the past with Rosalia and Goya, looking at that specific artwork for her... Oh, my gosh. You're going to say the pronunciation wrong. My Spanish. Dime, Dime nombre. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly, because um, that's inspired by a Goya portrait, right? Me. The Macha. The Macha or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my the God. Macha. You're just letting me say it. <laughs> yeah, I know. Stop. Yeah. It. Like, stop. <laughs> okay, thank you for that. But anyway, the point being is that where where do you get all your inspiration from? Because I know you don't watch music videos, so it's not from that. Yeah, it's a good question, actually. Um, you know, I was talking about this with someone the other day, and I love to kind of... Whenever I have a creative friend, like whether it's a writer or another director or whatever, I love that conversation of where do your ideas come from? I mean, like, I get ideas from quite random places sometimes. Like when I was a kid, I used to read a lot of comics. You know, I'll be watching like a a Spanish sitcom and I might get an idea from that. Or, you know, I might be um, reading something in a trashy magazine and it won't be like a, a particular thing or an article. It might be like talking about like an element of, uh, let's call it like over masculine behavior. And then I'll be like, oh, that's quite an interesting thing. I wonder what that looks like if you subvert it into the abstract. So I get ideas from weird places. I think. What was the Spanish sitcom? Yeah, it's uh, Paquita Salas. It's actually a comedy thing. Um, and it's very funny. It's kind of set in the kind of mid 90s. Um, has some of the most incredible styling. Um, yeah, and was actually a little bit of reference for the styling for the Break My Heart. So ah. <laughs> don't, don't tell anyone, <laughs> although that's too late. <laughs> it's a podcast. It still feels so dewa though, like um, it's so 90s. Also, I feel like, I mean, generally with your work, there's like definitely a signature, like there's, a, there's an element of continuity throughout everything that you do. But I think um, with, I love the way that like New Rules and Break My Heart there's definitely like a stylistic continuity there that like with all the the choreography and just the way like Dua is in the video and the way that the camera follows her. Was that purposeful? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's different for every artist, but I think, and this is, maybe this sounds a bit like much, but like what I try to do is I try to like, if that's, if that's a focus, if the focus is the artist, I try to align every element with them do you know what i mean so let's say for choreography you know okay for choreography i'm letting it be inspired by the 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 lyrics and um and the emotionality of the track and stuff and then beyond that you know will be very much informed by their their own style of movement or their body or what's what's right for them and then in the same way um with the way that the camera interacts with them i'm trying to capture their character rather than just trying to make shots do you know what I mean? Uh, you know, and I, 
I'll try and do that when I'm storyboarding or whatever. I'll try and approach it in a way which is very specific to personality or to character. You know what I mean? I think especially in music videos, you know, although storytelling is key, you know, you want to be doing something which is not just, okay, well, it's an over-shoulder shot, over-shoulder shot. So is it true that, like, with Dua, the video, because New Rules, like we say, really propelled her to this kind of different level, but the video was partly made in collaboration with the hotel. Is it Hotel Confidant in Miami? And so it's one of these funny... It's a brilliant story. It's a good one you dug up. It's, um... They lucked out, like, big time. <laughs> No, actually, to be fair, actually, I really like them guys because, like, you know, we wanted to make a great video, but, like, getting the money together for it is is difficult, especially shoot somewhere like Miami and stuff like that. Um, anyway, so then... So her manager, who's a smart guy, Ben, um, had got them involved. Um, they made a kind of documentary of us making the video, um, and they were really not like killer about product placement or whatever. They just said, oh, can you just make sure you show the front of the hotel at some point, which was easy in the interim. So to be clear, so was she not, was she not signed by then? So the label wasn't funding this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the label would, would be putting in a bit, but like the hotel put in the, the vast majority. Because the thing is with music videos is that, you know, I think we can say like artists have to pay for some of them. Do you know what I mean? And, and labels pay for part of it as well. So it's like, it's, you know, and I think the label would have stepped in and, and done it because obviously, you know, she's a great artist. But like, you know, if you can get sponsorship, then that takes the weight off everyone. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it would be kind of mad, right, if they weren't <laughs> paying for it because it is literally like a very gorgeous, very stylized tour of like loads of the hotel's facilities. <laughs> well, you know what's hilarious? Um, so there, there's a, a friend of... So I was then looking around um, and I was like, wow, this is beautiful. You know, this really reminds me of something. And there's a friend of mine who's an interior designer who's, uh, who's, who's other friend, Martin, is very much of this style. I've met Martin a few times. And so I texted my mate, Andrew, and I said, like, this confidante, like, this doesn't have, like, anything to do with Martin. It's like, yeah, he designed it. No so, like, yeah. <laughs> so, like, that's hilarious. I'm shooting here. That's amazing. And then, obviously, since, you know, Martin had been in touch going, like, wow, I'm so glad you showed off my wonderful design so well. <laughs> But it's actually a great opportunity because Joy Crooks, who's another rising star that was nominated for the Brits Rising Star, is now being sponsored by uh, Ibis Hotels for performances and videos. So it's actually a great way for kind of artists to be given a leg up. Well, especially because, like you say, out. videos can cost so much. And I mean, we were talking to Cassandra about this, and she was saying, what, for at Sony, it's like in the ballpark of like five to a hundred grand, basically. Like, in, in your experience, what does a music video cost these days? a very difficult um, difficult question in a way it depends it, it's very dependent on the concept mm. do you know like um, and it depends where you shoot as well do you know what I mean if you want to go and shoot in LA just triple anything that yeah. you're going to do in London yeah. Yeah. Um, I think you know it's you know we tend to get like kind of okay this is how much budget we have and we try to write an idea that will fit within that mm. box but I think, you know, one of my favorite videos I've ever done was like, we made for two grand. Or no, in fact, one of the earliest and favorite ones I did, we made for a grand and a half or something, you know. And then, you know, some other videos. What was that? Oh, it was, um, well, one I did recently was, was for Spyro, like a few years ago, who's a grime artist, who's wicked. And, uh, I, you know, obviously I was already working and stuff like that, but I was, you know, I kind of came up on making video, street videos or whatever. And like, um, and we made it for like 1200 quid, do you know? And actually it was a brilliant, it was a huge, it went down so well on the scene and I loved it. I loved the process and we had such a good time on it. And then funny enough, I was on a, on a call for, um, for a script. I think now it's past the NDA, but for a script for an Apple job and um, for a commercial job, which is like, you know, a great way to, to, to pay your rent. And um, and they mentioned, ah, oh, you know what? We love that Spyro video you did. Nice. And I was like, wow, okay. <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter. I think I think budget is like a it's like a sliding scale. You know, you can make a you know four hundred thousand. I made them for like five hundred pounds. Do you know what I mean? I don't think. Are you noticing labels are putting in more money 
has there been a shift at all over the last decade or have you noticed labels putting less money in than more money yeah yeah i mean the recent shift happened um what a year and a half ago or two years ago i think when youtube hit started to count for chart positions mm. yeah that was at the end of 2018 wasn't it yeah do you do commercial work like because you want to or for financial reasons to then like supplement the music video side of your business I mean, I do like, yeah, I mean, if you get a great commercial script, it's fantastic, you know, it's like, it's amazing, you get to, you get to play with all the toys, you get to do incredible things, work with, fan- yeah, get a big budget and work with fantastic talent and, and actually creatively, you know, you can really experiment and do really cool stuff. I think, you know, they can, be, they can be great. I think if you can, if you can um, use it for doing creative work, then that's the ultimate. Now, for a very short break, just so that we can say thank you very much once again to our fantastic series sponsor, Master of Malt, who are the online drinks and spirits retailer that have basically been the only thing getting us both through lockdown, quite frankly. Yeah, I've made about four or five bathtub gin deliveries since we started locking down. Um, So Master of Malt sell everything from wine to whiskey, including the Kino B gin that we drank during this interview. Yeah, Kino B is an award-winning Japanese gin from the Kyoto Distillery, and it's actually made from a rice spirit base and is flavoured with yuzu, among other things. I absolutely love this gin. It's such a nice little twist on the traditional gin and tonic and perfect for the nice weather um, because it's quite botanical, which I love. So you can buy Henry's bottle of gin for $39.95 via our special straight up landing page at masterofmalt.com slash straight up. That's masterofmalt.com forward slash straight up. Please drink responsibly and enjoy. You've talked about some of your um, early music videos before with kind of pro green and example so um they were back in like what 2007 2009 and it's it's got in fact they're very similar to your ones now for Stormzy in that you clearly love kind of filming on location around London and it's got that same kind of style of um people and scenes like popping out of like objects or like people's mouths or like yeah so you've kept your signature stop. So, but tell us, how did you, did you know, did you know them? Um, were you in the kind of same circles? Were you living near each other? How did that come about? No, I mean, like I met, like, how did it come about? Like, example was a friend of a friend and we did like one silly video together and then that was great. And then he knew Pro. Pro called me up and said, um, will you come make a video for me? And we did that one at the Upper Clapton Dance, which was still one of my favourite things I've ever done. Um, and then from there... How old are you at this point? I just don't know. I came to filmmaking quite late. I must have been like 27 or something, 26, 27, I don't know. Oh, okay. Yeah, because so, I was, I was, I only came to it like in my last year of uni. Like I'd always been into like watching films, but like... I don't know if this is an... I have a lot of American friends who, like, started out super, super young. But I don't know if this is an English thing or whatever, but, like, filmmaking just didn't seem like a thing that people actually do, unless you've been around people who already did it. I think that's an issue across the creative industries, generally, is that in Britain, like, you know, through no bad feeling, but everyone's kind of told, like just like focus on school and you'll be fine and you've got all this time to figure out what you want to do just make sure you like do your GCSEs and do this and then no you're not really encouraged to like explore any creativity or any passion that could really be applied in a very technical way to like really great jobs but there's no awareness of those even being a possibility yeah no that's super true I think that's I think yeah I think that's a a weird thing I I mean it's it's over here but it's also like you know it's a huge it's it's kind of that thing of like, ah, if someone gave you a lecture when you were like 16 or something and said, okay, this is filmmaking, you know, it's a kind of thing that I imagine if, if that had happened to me at the time, I would have been like, wow, I got to do that. But I think it's it's quite a rare thing to come across that. I think it's, um, I don't know, it just feels so, it's, it is actually, to be honest, it's not just feels, it is quite inaccessible. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's a far away place where, you know, far away things happen and then you get to see them. I think it's, um, I think that's, you know, and I do think it is quite um, an inaccessible industry in that kind of sense. Do you know, it is quite like... Would you advise um, aspiring 
filmmakers to go to film school? I know you didn't go. That's a good question. I mean, like, you know, whenever I'm speaking to, like, you know, young up-and-comers and, and, like, you know, or, like, texting, you know, texting back kids on Instagram and stuff like that, I, I, I personally, I think film school is great, but, like, it's very hard. I mean, if, you know, I didn't go to film school. It's very hard to afford it. You know what I mean? Like, if you were in America, like, they're properly expensive. I don't think, I think my advice is make your own film school, which is, um, which is kind of what I did, which is like, you know, okay, learn as much as you can from every, every resource you have. Nowadays, there's like a million resources and start shooting stuff and, and, and inevitably you will start to learn stuff and then you'll come across people and they will teach you stuff. And um, I think that's like, that's a great way to go in terms of making your own style and progressing in your own way. Um, uh, it's a hard path to forge. I think the great thing with film school is you get connections and, and you know, you get regime and stuff like that. Um, you started shooting on, it was like your sister was wanted to become an actress and you were shooting her demo tapes, right? <laughs> well, I, well it, was sort of, it was sort of actually like, no, basically the way it worked was she, was a, she, she wanted to become an actress. So she got um, a handy cam for Christmas or something for shooting audition tapes or something and I was fascinated by this um, camera and I'd already been kind of semi-hooked so I would borrow this camera to go out and go and shoot um, uh, uh, rap battling basically with this you know and they had night mode and stuff but you know and it was with yeah. this with this camera I would go and shoot those kind of rap battles and stuff like that kind of thing and um, and yeah I just got I got hooked into it it was like it was basically like you know I don't know if you were an artist, like getting like um, your first sketchbook or whatever. And I'd, you, I'd love to find that footage somewhere. I'm sure it's somewhere buried in a basement or something. But like, you know, I, you know, so experimental with, oh, what can you do with this? Where can you go with it and stuff? Um, but yeah. Was, you know. But what film directors were you inspired by? Well, you know, they're the, they're the typical ones, um, you know, like, you know, the Scorsese's um, and the Spielberg's and stuff like that, which you know actually when you start to learn a bit more about the craft you really understand what craftsmen they are um the the film that actually got me in i always forget the name of the director but the film that, that properly pulled me in was the city of god um which was incredible incredible film yeah and i love the kind of juxtaposition of like incredible visual um techniques combined with super storytelling and very very acute casting and i guess that's kind of linked with it's all kind of roaming around kids on bikes and running yeah. around favelas and stuff and i guess that's a kind of similar theme to your videos is running around london yeah. and kind of that kinetic energy in all your videos all the kids in Vossibop. yeah all yeah. the kids <laughs> in Vossibop. yeah no it's yeah, exactly. really true was Vossibop like the first time you worked with stormzy because obviously you guys have a bit of a creative relationship going on now yeah, no, it was the first time we worked together, and um, yeah, he was brilliant. I mean, that man. What are your memories of meeting him first time? Big guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When I interviewed him, I felt like a pea. He is so tall. He's a big guy, but you know what? Like, actually, my real memory is like warmth, and I think that really is like truly what he's about. Like, it's rare that you meet someone who has got so much warmth. And, and real right, love for people and everything. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I remember on the, on the set of Vossibot, we had, um, he kind of, you know, found the, 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 the gang of kids on bikes and stuff like that, and we got them down. And instead of like, you know, going and hanging out with mates, going back to his trailer or whatever, you know, we were like, oh, it's gonna be a half an hour reset. And he goes, oh, cool. And he goes, and, and I look over and there he is, just with all of these kids, just hanging out with them on on their bikes, uh, you know, him on a bike, just talking to them about their life and just stuff and like, you know, and I just thought, wow, he's such, he's such a hero. Like I really, so out of nowhere, I, you know, I haven't spoken to him for a few months or whatever because of things, but like I get, get something delivered to my office and it's a platinum disc for Vossibop with my name on it. And I just think like, Wow, no one, no one makes such an effort as someone, someone like that. Oh. Yeah, it's very, very warm individual. Very, very creative. Very focused and knowing what he wants, um, and, and what he's about. 
So where does Stormzy get his? Because I know like Fraser T. Smith was telling us once that he got, um, he wanted a saxophone sample because he heard it on The Simpsons and he wanted to sample The Simpsons. Like, so have, did you notice that kind of quirky, kind of random inspiration coming through when he was talking to you about what he, what styles he was interested in? Yeah, but I think that's why we click so much is because like, you know, what seems random, I think to, to, um, to, to most, I guess, and like, oh, you know, I was watching The Simpsons, I saw this actor, whatever. I'd be like, yeah, I think I know the episode. I know, I know exactly what you mean. That, <laughs> that was a moment, right? And then other people, like certainly the arty, the arty people would be like, you watch The Simpsons? You know, and I'm like, you know, and I, I think that's it. I think that's what I meant when I said earlier about getting your inspiration from everywhere. I think that's, it actually makes a kind of freshness to it because like you kind of, yeah, you get ideas from 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 strange places, um, and I think he's very he's very like that as well. And I think you know, remember that ideas or or unique ideas are built up of different synapses, like clicking off in your head, connecting one dot to another to make a new one. Um, and I think you know, for a lyricist, were there any specific ones that he was? that you had talked about. Oh yeah, I mean, there was, there was a real moment when we were having a discussion about what kind of car he should be on. And I was like, you know, cause he's got this, 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 um, I don't know what it's called. It's like a, basically an S, what's it called? Like a truck style Lamborghini. And I was like, Ooh, maybe it's a bit much if you're on the Lamborghini. It's like, yeah, totally no way. <laughs> and then we are like, oh, maybe it's a Mercedes, like an old school Mercedes, yeah, cool. And I was like, yeah, maybe it's a Mercedes because it's not going to be like a, like an Uber, is it? And then we, we both were like, or an Uber. And then he was like, mate, it's got to be an Uber. And then I was like, you know, I get it. It's definitely an Uber. <laughs> so like, and that was a moment. And then it was like from the Uber, it went to like, you'll never see it. But in the background, there's a Boris bike somewhere as well. It's so... And it was like kind of... It's so London, you know what I mean? And that poor Uber driver, because we did have someone booked on the day. Oh my God, he's a real Uber driver. No, wait, wait, wait. So we did have someone booked on the day. But um, it's not actually, the, the driver of the car is a precision driver, you know, proper stunt driver. But we didn't have, the guy who was supposed to come with the Uber didn't show up. So one of the, one of the PAs um, ordered an Uber. Oh my God. Who didn't realise, of course that it would have Stormzy on the bonnet of it. Now, probably one of the more famous Ubers in London. So, I mean, that's the thing. He's probably got a sign up <laughs> That's so funny. I would have thought you guys would have just rented like a, like a Toyota Prius. We had, it all, we, we had it all, we had it all lined up. No, we had it all lined up, but it just didn't show up. So we had to get an Uber in the that's end. That's so good. More authentic. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about Sounds of Skeng. Um, how did you guys come up with that? Uh, brief was was it your both of your ideas to have Tom's nephews in it or how did you storyboard that it's I mean like you know I'm a big fan of quick lyrics which is what that is and then I you know I had this idea in my head like how many of these could we actually execute if we take each lyric as a moment how many scenarios can we cycle through yeah so then I was thinking so I thought, okay, there's, uh, there's it's so many lyrics. How, how fast can we cycle through these and how many scenarios can we get away with? Anyway, so then I was thinking about, okay, well, look, he's telling us about who he is, about like what Mr. Skeng is and stuff. Or, you know, he's kind of educating us. And then I remembered from the Bossy Bop shoot um, in the rehearsals, um, on one of the rehearsals, he brought along his two little nephews. And Storms with his little nephews uh, is kind of like kind of telling them like, no, don't do that. Go and sit over there, like go and do this. And then explaining them stuff the whole time. And I remember watching it in rehearsals and just thinking, oh, that's so cute. Like these two boys, they're so cute and stuff. They really listen to like Uncle Storms. And so I was like, wait, if he's telling them about Mr. Skeng, that's going to be hilarious. And so obviously it was like, it became a video. Yeah. So was that even like the mountain, like the mountain green screen, which obviously was used as like, like the top of the mountain green screen used as a social cut? Was that, again, just basing it on the lyrics, taking them literally and putting it into a physical situation? Yeah, absolutely. It was like, give me some distance. Whoa, you know, <laughs> it made sense. You know, he's yeah. Yoda on top of the mountain. Oh my God, so good. Why, Um, because I noticed I had to like 
pause the video and then like zoom in he's reading the velvet touch on the rooftop <laughs> with his nephews taking notes um and then when i google the velvet touch there are quite a few books with different authors called the velvet touch what's that book about <laughs> that book is that book is actually not a real book but now you've said it's a real book then it's obviously a real book that was um <laughs> that was just made up in terms of, i think we stole the title from obviously the real velvet touch um, but actually it was just more like the idea that he's reading a, a kind of Mills and Boone, a kind of romance novel, <laughs> which he does very well in performance. Like he really makes you, he, I think his lips are even moving like, ah, oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> and obviously he's got a track called Velvet, doesn't he? Oh, okay. Well, yeah. And so talking about, um, well, moving on to Boasty. It is so clear that Wiley didn't turn up to his own music video because I have been on the receiving end of this. Yeah, no, he doesn't show up. <laughs> um, as you'll see in the video, there is a little computer game sequence at the beginning where he is trying to get to his flight but doesn't quite make it. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked loads about the British artists you worked with and obviously we touched on the hostage video with Billy, um, but you know she is really like the biggest pop pop star in the world right now, and like you know that I mean that video is incredible. Um, how did it actually come about, and what's like the most significant thing you remember like about her, either from the shoot or just in general? She she is like an incredible um, personality. Like yeah, you know obviously you know she's a massive massive star now, um, but you know there's a quality to her which is. Very, very different. I mean, I guess that's whatever they call it, star quality and stuff like that. It, it's kind of like she's a very deep thinker. She's like got a lot of charisma. She's actually like hella fun. Um, she can act, she can dance. Um, she can put her mind into it. Like that whole song is written in a third person as in she's imagining what that person would be like or what it would be like to be in that kind of relationship. You know, she was only 16, 17 at the time. So she's like, think, yeah, thinking about like she, you know, she doesn't even, for a lot of her songs, she doesn't even write from, from her point of view. She doesn't say, this is a song about me. This is a song about someone I saw in a cafe and I imagined all of the rest of what they were feeling or who they are and stuff like that, which did she tell you, because um, Hostage is about kind of like locking your lover inside you almost, right? Did she tell you where she got that idea? From? Yeah, I mean, she got, she got it literally from, from you know, imagining a character who had that situation. It's not her, you know, she hasn't had that situation. But that kind of ability to empathise and write about a character which is in her own head is uh, extraordinary. Um, it's like, isn't Oshon I mean, I remember like that, psychopath yeah. or something How? as well, I think. Yeah, yeah. Who's <laughs> about a song about it. And it's not like, you know, her parents who are... And she's inspired by The Walking Dead and The, the Walking Office. Dead and, and The Office. Walking Dead and The Office. And did it. Yeah. So good. I mean, there are so many, like, incredible female powerhouses. Obviously, you've worked with lots of different artists, but, like, Rosalia, Dua, Billy, I mean, like, they're up there with, like, the biggest stars. Um, what was it like? Oh, Camille Cabello as well, right? Yeah, Camille. To go back to Rosalia first. Um as we said, obsessed. Is she, like you said, she's kind of got a star quality. She's. Oh wait, you're going to get the, you, you guys are going to get the ship, ship horns. Can you hear that? Huh? The ship, ship horns? Ship, ship, the ones from the boats. Oh, the ship. <laughs> no, I can't hear it. You can't hear it? No, okay. I can't the hear it. The ship horns. Yeah. <laughs> um, I can't. Yeah, like, so you were saying she's kind of got like this star quality about her, this attention to detail the X Factor, whatever. Um, but is that like, like how does that kind of come across in real life? Is she as compelling as she seems? Yeah, no, she is. Just just with all of them, I think, you know, in, in the same way you, you talk about movie stars or whatever, they have like a kind of a deeper charisma. They have like a, a thing, I don't know how to describe it and stuff like that, but they're very, you know, very, very compelling. You know, they're really, um, I don't know, it's kind of like, you know, they're, they're really open and driven and... and That's why they're yeah, famous. they kind of pull you into their boat. Yeah, I, I, I think it's like, I think, you know, I think we will have it to some extent and stuff like that kind of thing. And I think, you know, someone like Rosalie is like really, you know, she, she kind of gives off... I think a lot of it is like energy. Mm. Like this, this sounds really kind of like pseudoscience or whatever but a lot of it is like energy and you know like if you're putting out certain energy 
then you know people feel it i think that's i guess that's what charisma is or whatever but when you're kind of translating her lyric you know i guess you have to spend some time kind of analyzing the lyrics to a song you're about to translate into a video how how difficult was it to connect with a different language uh yeah no i i speak good enough spanish i understood everything in in the in the song but i also you know and this is kind of an answer to a different question maybe which is how much to lyrics inform concept and i and i you know i like to imagine that you know you start with a baseline which is the emotion like imagine if uh, yeah i guess if if you listen to a song but it's in a different language but it's like but the but, but the the emotion of the song comes through in the vocal performance or in the melody or just in the, the you know just the way of the artist then you kind of don't need to know the lyrics and then what happens is that then you discover the lyrics and you go like wow okay there's this is all on the same line um so the same with like when you when you um let's say if you were doing choreography for something you know if you really go for lyrics which is like i eat a burger you know <laughs> actually that won't work on a podcast but i'm making a sign as if i'm eating a burger and then i'm looking at the sun and i'm making a sign like that if you do choreography like that it will never make sense i think you know you have to you have to articulate um, emotion first and then the lyrics. So that's why I think with, with when, you know, someone like Adele, you know, Adele works in every single language mm. because you feel it mm. rather than, you, you know, you don't need to know what she's singing about. You feel what she's singing about. How long does it take you to shoot a music video? Like how much time do you have to block out of your... Three, three weeks, three, four weeks, really, a month. Like to do it properly, you need a month. And how many days um, of those would you actually be shooting? Oh, you're only shooting like two, maybe one, two, maybe one. But it takes like in, you know, I think some people, some people can turn around a video in like, I mean, like, actually, to be honest, we prepped and shot Vossi Bop in six days. Wow. Seven days. And obviously your career has been like just full of amazing successes. But for kind of aspiring filmmakers or creatives listening to this, what has been like, a massive mistake that you have really learned from like when something went completely tits up wow so many to choose um, <laughs> no joking. um give us your juiciest no it's it's a really difficult one actually you know i was talking to someone the other day about you know when things go wrong and how to how to react to it let me think um, what if there's like a kind of creative clash in terms of the vision like if you just don't agree with an artist or they don't like what you the finished product like how much kind of give and take is there and, you know, how much do you have to roll over in that situation if they're essentially I mean, paying? Yeah, I once had, yeah, I, I mean, I've had, I've had a thing like ages ago with, it, with an artist where, you know, I really believed that the edit was, was um, you know, tied it before in one sort of way and then they wanted to take it a different way in terms of the aesthetic of how they appeared and stuff. And this is no one that you know from my work and stuff like that. Um, and, um, and it was very tricky, um, but in the end it's their, it is their kind of, their videos as well as, as your kind of videos. And I think, you know, for those kind of things, like it's very good to, to, to fight and be active in, in disagreement, but at the end of the day, I wouldn't call it rolling over, but you know, you have to, you know, realize, you know, where you are in the situation. At the same time, you know, you have to be very, I think one of the hardest, one of the hardest paths for directing is that you have to be very tight on your vision. You have to really know what you want. You have to prepare so that you can display to everyone this is exactly what I'm after and what I'm looking for, um, so that they feel confident in you. Um, whilst at the same time negotiating a hundred different personalities and situations, uh, and making sure that you stick to that kind of singular vision. Um, I think there's, you know, at the beginning of, um, of learning to direct, you think, oh, you know, it's learning how to point a camera and work with the light and, you know, get a performance and stuff. And, and that's it. And that's maybe like 50 or 60% of it. But the, the large other part of it, I think, from almost all perspectives is also having, you know, how, how you work with, with people, mm. you know, I think there's a, it's a lot more emotional intelligence than it is academia, you know. What are your kind of, I know you said you don't watch music videos because you don't want to kind of be all kind of taking from the same pot of inspiration, which I totally get because musicians also say that about listening to kind of their peers. But yeah, but 
you know, everyone, for instance, can agree that like Childish Gambino's This Is America is one of the most iconic music videos of the last 10 years and really also made us kind of re-examine how important a music video is just like culturally. Whether they can be political. Mm -hmm. So what would be your kind of, if you had to list a couple that have really made an impact on you and music culture as a whole over the last decade? Over the last decade? Are there any that stand out for you? Um, or longer, I mean, or two decades. No, 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 yeah. no, no, that decade is fine, you know. I think, um, yeah, you know, Heroes, Childish Gambino was amazing. Like, I just, I just felt completely 100% engaged by it. It did everything a music video should do. Um, I remember when the Daniels Breakdown for What came out, and I just thought, like, this is, like, videos like that kind of re-engage you with, with video making, in general, um, um, some of Canada's, you know, kind of work has always been like, kind of, it's so not my style, but I just admire it so much, like the way that they can, you know, even the Phoenix video or whatever, the way that they can kind of pull out different, you know, different conceptual ideas and make it very, very owned by them, you know, it's not like, it's very specific to them and their references and where they get the, you know, where they, they draw their own inspiration from and therefore, you know, and it's super fresh. Um, so yeah, those would be, I think those would be the ones to touch on. Um, and you know, even the FKA Twigs last year, I was like, oh, this is just absolutely beautiful, realized um, kind of visionary work. Um, and I think that those kind of standout pieces, like, everyone sees them and everyone is totally engrossed by them. I think they're, they're brilliant. Is there an artist that's on the top of your list to work with that you haven't already? Kendrick Lamar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's an easy question. I could, I could list a few, but yeah, yeah. We had two questions that we kind of wanted to end on. Um, we've kept you long enough, I'm sure, and you probably want to get over to your dinner. Um, but first one is, we've talked obviously a lot about like a Henry Schofield's signature. Maybe, I don't know whether you feel that, but we were saying like there's definitely a specific aesthetic to your work. How would you describe that if you could? Um, it's very, I think it's a very good question. I think it's very difficult to kind of, I'm sure like when faced with like, written answers you could probably spend half a day working out how to rephrase what is your style I would say you know I think as as probably for everyone like you know your style is kind of what you'd like to watch yourself and maybe that's it you know maybe you know I do like I like stuff which is like immersive is probably the the thing I really go for you know I would say like and I soulful Although I don't mean soulful in the kind of like, oh, heartfelt kind of way. I mean it more like in the kind of way of like, it has a real emotion to it rather than just feeling, you know, like kind of top level shallow and stuff. And and I think, especially early days and stuff like that, you know, before I had technical skills, I would definitely favor, you know, soulfulness over perfect technical execution um, you know, and nowadays, you know, now I can kind of craft stuff, you know, you can get both a bit, but like, I really think like, you know, I always value performance and truth a bit more than like kind of, you know, cold technicality. And so like, yeah, I think that's what I aim for is something which is immersive, entertaining, I guess. Um, but you know, but also, and I think this is the other thing is like, you know, there's, there's artistry, there's artistry in there, but maybe because I never went to film school, whatever, I don't feel like I have like an auteurship where I'm trying to make some sort of incredible kind of motifs or iconography for stuff, even though I did, I do actually put that in there because I did like self-study film theory and stuff like that, and I love that kind of stuff. But, you know, I'm, I'm more trying to be um, on a more human level. We would love to know, we've talked about you were, you know, a really big variety of the artists that you've worked with, and I'm sure you have your own favourites within there in terms of to your whose music that you particularly love, whose you don't. But which would you say from throughout your career is the project singularly that you're most proud of? Obviously, I'm really proud of like um, Bossy Bob because I, you know, I think it was just like it was such a great moment of recent culture. I think it was like, you know, I remember like you know that at the end of that three hour meeting. Well, not in the end, it was actually like Storms and me were, you know, were walking around the offices, taking a break for a minute and, you know, 
And um, one of the marketing people went, oh, Storm says Fossilbot is going to be number one. He goes, yeah, it is. And then he turned around to me and he went, like, kind of, it's going to be number one, right? And I said, yeah, damn right. And I remember that moment. Yes. And um, and I was so proud of us. Like, And I mean, I was like, me and Storm was like, you know, that made it just like unforgettable. Well, thank you so much. So like a lot of other people, Ellie and I have of course been reading and watching and listening to as much content as possible that taps into the really, really important conversations that have been happening around race, both, uh, well, here in the UK and globally. Um, You know, I think to be, as a white person, to be a proactive ally of the Black Lives Matter movement, then beyond donations, beyond um, grass movement, beyond obviously protesting a key key way to be an ally is to educate yourself and to read as widely as you possibly can um to hear from as many black writers and voices and academics as you can and you know again just even when it comes to tv think about what you're watching and you know one thing that was not created in a response to what's going on right now but certainly feels super 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 timely is little fires everywhere which um i know you also loved Oh my God, I loved it. You know what? I was so put off because I'd read some quite bad reviews from people basically being like, oh, it's just Reese Witherspoon being her character in Big Little Lies in a different show Um, because it's her production company again. She bought the rights to produce Celeste Ng's book of the the same name, Little Fires Everywhere. But then my parents recommended it to me. And so I started watching it. And actually, I think the reviews have been really unfair. For those that don't know, it's basically Reese Witherspoon plays a suburban... um, mum who's basically incredibly ignorant and narrow-minded but very much sees herself as like a paragon of virtue um and then it's like cloaked in liberalism i think that's the thing about her isn't it she's not like actively ignorant she's meant to be this like progressive white liberal that like her daughter has a black boyfriend and she marched with martin luther king and she always goes on about how her mum was like on the board when they desegregated schools but actually you can see that her prejudice is like so deeply ingrained within everything that she does and thinks about especially in terms of Kerry Washington's character and how she judges her and so there's this parallel family um of basically this single mum played by Kerry Washington Mia and her teenage daughter Pearl and Reese Witherspoon's character Len um rents her second flat to her and they become very intertwined Reese Witherspoon makes this horrible blunder early on where she basically asks Mia if she wants to be her housekeeper thinking that she's doing her a favour because she doesn't have a job when actually Mia is this very successful artist and it's very reductive to just assume yeah she seems like oblivious of like the highly offensive racial undertones being like hi can you come and like be our maid exactly but what I was really interested in actually is that um so Shaker Heights was really well known for having compulsory kind of uh, race workshops essentially like what Oxford and Cambridge have now yeah like sensitivity workshops racial sensitivity training in which they had to learn the dynamics of prejudice and basically it very much taught liberalism and virtue as um as a kind of rule and there was this really uh, the really weird facts about the community where basically they had to have um, their grass cut to exactly the same height across the whole neighbourhood. That- oh, yeah, they, they mentioned that, like, quite a lot in the programme. Yeah, and all of the roads are designed so that a kid, a school kid, never has to cross a major road. Like, it's incredibly regulated. It's a bit like um, Stepford Wives vibes, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Also, I didn't realise... So, basically, it, it almost sets these two families up against each other, and both of them are completely flawed in different ways. Um, but one of the main themes is just the way that the white family, headed up by Reese Witherspoon's character, kind of just uses the black family, Pearl, for instance, the daughter, as a kind of social asset. This is an interesting fact. I didn't realise that in the book, Mia, the um, play by Carrie Washington, is in fact unspecified in terms of her race. She was never black in the book. Oh, really? So actually, yeah, so Reese Witherspoon and her production company um, has added this whole level of, like, racial tension. Extra layer. Yeah, which I think works so well. It does, and especially, again, weirdly, like, sort of prescient for the times in that it really taps into that different relationship that the white community have with the police than the black community. Like, you know, it's so clear that for the Reese Witherspoon character, the police are there to like, you know, support them, protect them. For the black community, they're there to like aggressively police them and, you know, make them feel that they're always doing something wrong. She can't barely drive down the road without feeling nervous. And I know, of course, that there's this wider storyline that I won't go into too much now, but when that's, there is this particular episode where they have dealings with the police and it really, really, really does, I think, um, 
compound what what white privilege really is I guess and just seeing on in, in every aspect of someone's life how that could completely shape what's happened to them I think it is what I've particularly taken home from it is this um just to be super wary I think going forward of the kind of white savior complex that it taps into like of just sometimes I think white women and this is something Rennie Edio Lodge has talked about before in her podcast about race are so um concerned of people thinking well of them that they kind of insert themselves in these conversations about race when they really have no place and this is what Reese Witherspoon's character completely demonstrates the white savior theme is actually something that is um incredibly um noticeable in the book um such fun age by carly reed which is something i also just read if you read that no i haven't but i saw you post it on instagram stories and i was like oh my god I, lo- I it is one of the best books i've read in the last two years it re it almost reads like you're watching a film the dialogue is insane this book in particular was really useful for me as a white person who will obviously be talking about race um as part of my work and beyond of just being super careful of not almost kind of inserting yourself within conversations in which you have no place, taking, trying to force conversations about race on people of colour. So for instance, in this in this book, there's the, the black character, um, Amira has a, a white boyfriend who basically really pressurises her into releasing this footage of her being racially profiled in a supermarket. And she's like, no, like, I'm literally trying to get a new job. Why the hell would I want my employers to be able to see, like, that's the first thing they see of me on the internet. Like, just because it makes you feel good about being part of this, like, woke moment of my life. Like, it does nothing to help me. It just makes you feel good. And it's and then she works for this. It's just, like, completely self-serving. It's completely self-serving. And uh, this is what I think the, the BLM movement has also been um, important in, in raising, is that it is not up to white people to pick and choose when we decide to talk about our black friends or black people about race. Like, they're having to live it every fucking second of their day. We, it's not up to us. Yeah, of course. I mean, that's the whole thing now, isn't it? Is that like, it's not, you do not go to your black friends and ask them to like educate you or give you information or essentially do the work. Like now is the time for the white people to do the work, to go away, to read like the millions of amazing books and pieces of content that are already out there by incredible black writers and academics. Like it's not for us to ask black people to have to explain their trauma. Exactly. And I think that that's, that's a, a word that's been using, that's been used a lot recently is the idea of like trauma porn of like white people almost like getting off on constantly seeing this, this black suffering. Oh my God, completely. And actually, um, I mentioned this to you earlier, but it's such a good piece. The one by Yomi Adegoki for, for British Vogue, which I think was a couple of weeks ago, which was about like, let's rethink the picture. It didn't happen approach to activism where she basically says like, you know, not only just this kind of like social media solidarity potentially, um, well, not, not only is social media solidarity like potentially problematic um, in that it's, it's hollow, there's an expectation there for black people to have to perform grief, which in itself is obviously exhausting and traumatic. And, you know, yes, white people are now all talking about this because the Black Lives Matter movement has brought these issues to the fore. But like, like you say, this is like black, the black communities every day and it's not a trend or a viral moment or something that suddenly people are just should be interested in. And actually I have to say, Otegawa Wagba, who I really love, she's like a really, really great um, writer and podcaster, British. And she um, basically said like, I feel really uncomfortable with people tagging me in their Instagram posts as like a black woman to follow. Like I'm not this, you know, I'm not here to like educate you. You can't just voyeuristically look at my life and then come away with it feeling that you're educated on race. Like it's mm, weird. That's so true. Yeah. And also, I think it's something that um, I was just saying, re-listened to an episode of Renny uh, Edo Lodge's podcast about race, which I also really recommend, um, where she talks, it's the, it's the one called White Women Crying is Racist. And it basically taps into this idea of the fetishization and therefore dehumanization of black people, where like, we basically see them as an oracle when it comes to speaking about like what how to go forward in terms of race and com- combating systemic racism like and it's yeah, also it's like expecting black people to have the answers and also the idea of like i think it was austin dabo actually who tweeted this he was like companies are going to make a lot of bad decisions 
in the face uh, or in the wake of BLM because they are not going to question black people who are putting forward ideas like just because they're black doesn't necessarily mean that their ideas are best some black people have bad ideas as well and this is what Rennie Edo Lodge was saying was that you are dehumanizing black people by never challenging them by never asking them mm. to elaborate on their thoughts or maybe they just might be wrong and then Rennie Edo Lodge also says in this in this episode that um, she is sick of white women basically like projecting their like guilt onto her. And there was this woman who cried. Is this the episode that has Dolly Alderson? No, it's in it? not. This is the episode where she talks about how a white woman cried in one of her book talks. And it's like, what do you want me to do oh, with your yeah. white fragility and your white grief? Like, like that it's just so uncomfortable. Why are you sitting there crying? Ugh, that is that, and that really, I think that's like it, that kind of taps into the whole Reese Witherspoon character so much, doesn't it? That's like, literally. Oh my god, Reese Witherspoon, which her. no, not Reese Witherspoon, but um, yeah, her character. The character. Would cry. I also feel really bad. I can't remember the name of her character already, but I don't know why. Elena, that's it. It's Elena. Elena. Yeah, her, she, Elena would cry in Rennie Edelodge's talk. I couldn't believe as well. Actually, I saw on Twitter the other day. I when I listened to that podcast, like. But probably about a year ago now, I always just assumed that it was like a sister project to the book and that the publishing house would have like funded it and made it happen. And then I saw the other day that Rennie had um, retweeted, I think, the producer saying how like no one wanted to give any funding for the podcast. It's still really, I think, one of only two podcasts about black British contemporary cult, like black contemporary social history. And um, they basically did it on like a shooting budget in someone's front room. Uh, in one of the people working in the podcast front room because like no one was interested. Oh my God, I did not know that. Yeah, so it was essentially more of like a homemade passion project than this thing that had the great might of the publishing industry behind it. Interesting. I really want um, uh, her book, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, to go on the national curriculum. I've seen there's a petition that's going around about that. I actually think that's such a good idea. But I think that's GCSE so, level. so, so important. Definitely. I mean, the thing at the moment, the problem is, like, is education, isn't it? I know it sounds so obvious, like everyone's saying it as if, it's not the obvious thing, but we there is just no way that young people anywhere in the world are ever going to be able to properly understand, you know, geopolitics, race relations, anything, unless they understand the history of colonialism and like why the world is the way it is. Like the fact that kids in Britain don't even understand why there are black people in the Caribbean or why, you know, um, Indian migrants came to the UK after Indian independence or, you know, the Windrush generation even to go like to the Caribbean community, there was literally posters up in Jamaica that were saying like, come and rebuild the homeland, we need you. And yet now, the, I mean, the treatment of, of those poor, poor people is just, it's it like beggars belief. And yet I don't think that people are equipped with the right knowledge to understand why that's even an issue because people don't understand why the world is the way it is and the role that Britain's played and the fact that really we like colonized so much of the planet and completely like fucked it up. And I think there's never going to be a real, you know, accountability among white people. Like, and I, when I say that, I mean, in a broad level, I mean, outside of academic circles, I mean, outside of white people that engage with black culture in a meaningful way. I mean, for like the general, general, general swathe of public, like then there'll never be any accountability about racism unless they like really truly understand it. Also, I what I um, found out the other day, and I'm maybe shocking that I didn't know before, but it was only in 2015 that the British taxpayer stopped paying off a loan to slave owners as compensation. That is like a fucking piss take, isn't it? That there would have been like black British taxpayers contributing to that like it, it, it the, the hypocrisy is just like so astounding it's unreal there's never been any reparations for the black community anywhere I mean I love I know it's not you know like <laughs> an unusual choice but George the Poet's podcast have you heard George's podcast is so 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 amazing for these reasons because it's basically about like the black community having control over its own narrative and he talks a lot about how the main storytellers of in the black community now are rappers but that's one side of the story and there needs to be a broader look at how those experiences are conveyed and I know uh, you've listened to it haven't you I have listened to bits of it yeah I listened to the Grenfell episodes which are absolutely brilliant but you've li you've listened to it right from the start yeah I've listened to the whole thing and I, and I would recommend listening to it I, even though he deals with different topics in different episodes like for example there might be an episode on like there's one on 50 Cent which is like fascinating in terms of contextualizing 50 Cent's life within the broader American story. But then there's also an episode on like Libya and um, immigration. And then there's one, obviously the Grenfell episode is like really, really, really powerful. Um, is there I'm one in particular you'd recommend it. for, is there one in particular you'd recommend for right now? 
honestly, the first episode, like the first episode is called Listen Closer. It starts with George. It throws you right in because the amazing thing about the podcast as well is it's super immersive. Like it's unlike anything else I've ever heard. There's just all this noise and you feel that you're with George, whether he's like sat in a park or in an Uber. Like it's, um, it's like a soundscape. I know that sounds... He has different characters as well, doesn't he? Yeah. Like it's this really rich, like textural world that's created out of sound. And yeah, the first episode starts with him watching his nephews play with their friends in the park and he's imagining what the 20, next 20 years will be like for them. Um... And thinking, you know, I think he says like, oh, people get uncomfortable that um, like there's a cause and reflect relationship between the things we say out loud and the way the future pans out because he's saying, oh, like some of them will be dead, some of them will be in jail. And obviously that's like an uncomfortable truth, those negative prospects. So from the very beginning, he's basically framing the black British experience. Okay, so the book that I actually wanted to talk about is Homegoing by Yar Jassy, which I read a couple of years ago. It came out in 2016, but it's just so, so, so prescient for now, I think in particular. Um, it's this like really, really ambitious, sweeping historical novel that basically looks at the legacy of slavery and racism through the story of seven generations in one family. And then, like, I don't want to give too much away because... Um, I, want, I really want everyone to go and read it because honestly, you won't regret it. But each chapter basically follows a different descendant of um, an Asante woman uh, that starts with two sisters, one of whom marries like a British colonial officer and stays in Africa and the other who is sold into slavery and taken to the US. So it looks at the two, the family, how the family tree diverges and the two very different, but obviously in some ways aligning experiences that these families have. It covers hundreds and hundreds of years of history and it covers like everything from the Anglo-Ashanti wars of the 19th century to like the war on drugs in America and how that basically became a new form of Jim Crow, um, just another system to police black people by. And it just shows these like long, long reaching effects of colonialism and how slavery is still felt everywhere today and that it's just not, it's not history, like it's our present and it's something that we all need to understand to have a better grip on why the world is the way it is in the first place. And actually, one thing to add is Jessie, she was only 26 when this was published. Um, she started writing it when she was at Stanford. She was born in Mampong in Ghana, but she was raised in like Alabama, Huntsville. Um, she got a research grant to go to Ghana when she was at Stanford. And then I think everything kind of came from there. But she's got one of those like fascinating... Um, not even like transatlantic is the wrong word like um, transcultural transcontinental perspectives and you really get that with the book it's it's yeah I can't recommend it enough honestly I will I would get, lend you my copy but I've lent it to someone else and I can't remember who and you it, need to lend me now, so. okay I'm also going to lend you Americana again a very important book on race relations in yes America no, I'm desperate to read that um, also British by Afwa Hirsch really really good I also would like to recommend I May Destroy You which is on the BBC yes. written and directed by Michaela Cole which is very interesting in that it has nothing to do with race and therefore everything to do with race so basically the it, 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 all the characters are black um, and it's not got uh, race is not the main engine of the show which is actually quite unusual when you think about dramas fronted by um black actors um, which is shocking like that should not be it should not be unusual but sadly it is and I do think it is going to switch up how dramas are commissioned and um, how we see black people on screen I mean I know for instance one of my friends has said like I am he was black I am sick and tired of basically going to the cinema and seeing films about slavery or turning on the tv and seeing like racial oppression like I do not want to see these dramas anymore and it's also dehumanizing because I think if you just concentrate on oppression all the time, then you're not really giving space for those human moments, like we're saying, whether that's just looking at like the simple simplicity of day to day life or in this context, actually looking at a really serious universal topic, which is sexual assault. Yes. So I should have said it's about sexual assault. Um, anyway, it's brilliant. Really recommend that. And I think lastly, to kind of wrap up, I just... I want to say that Kathleen and I are definitely thinking about um, how we interact with black culture as journalists. I think obviously this podcast, we have talked about um, black music a lot. And I think one thing that the BLM movement, well, this iteration of it at least, has made me think about it is that it is no longer enough as a white journalist to be writing about black culture, to be commissioning white journalists to write about black culture. Um, black journalists um, should be writing about their own culture and it's no longer for enough sure. for magazines to get like brownie points for covering black culture for for you know um, brands to get brownie points for having a black influencer fronting a campaign we need black people making the decisions 
we need black people setting the agenda on the inside. We need more black journalists, more black editors, more black consultants, more black executives, more, um, yeah, just black people at the top setting the agenda on their own culture instead of having white people parrot it for them. Agreed. I mean, I think Koji Radical, the musician, actually, I commissioned him to write an op-ed for, for GQ last week on the Black Lives Movement in Britain, on social media solidarity, on the history of racism in the UK and all these things, the, the ways in which the black community and allies of the BLM movement can move forward. Um, but I think, you know, he did point to that as well. Like you say, the, the, the lack of black journalists, it's like 0.2% of journalists are black, which... When you think that three percent of the population are, you know, that's just there's no there's no argument for like proportional representation there. Like it's completely outrageous. Obviously, journalism is like very male, pale, stale. We know that, but this is yeah, this is the point now, and I hope that this will feel like a generational shift. And I certainly think for the people, you know, the people that we're around, and for other young people. Um, this is a huge, huge defining moment. This isn't just like part of the new cycle that's going to go away. This is the time to make a change. It's time for everyone to be more aware. It's time for white people to be much more proactive in their allyship. I think what, you know, really spoke to me from Koji's piece came right towards the end as well. And I've seen this sentiment echoed a lot and it actually fits with Afwa Hirsch and what you were just talking about with British. And I know she says this, like the system isn't broken. This isn't something like, oh my God, where have we all gone so wrong? It's like this system is working exactly as it was designed to. Now is the time for us to like strip everything back and completely change. A good note to end on, I think. Um, please do send us your commendations as usual uh, via uh, Instagram. I'm on Ellie Halls one and Kathleen is on Kathleen.m.johnston. Please do rate, review and subscribe. Our music is by Marlon Percy. Our editing is by Marlon Percy. And that's it.